0: So why don't you tell me about what is the most difficult thing about explaining carbon offsets
1: to folks? And and, and this is supposed to be the fun question. Um, it's a difficult world to dive into. One of the most interesting things, though, is trying to explain to people and convince people that you can actually store carbon by cutting trees. You can store carbon in a forest by cutting trees and by managing a forest. So many people think, you know, if you're going to keep a forest healthy, if you're going to store carbon in a forest, you got to turn it into a park. And and explaining the nuances of exactly how it is you can manage a forest that actually increases the amount of carbon stored in it, and that, that you can take deliberate and additional actions that can then be, you know, valued and monetized, that's that's probably the, that's, that's one of the more difficult aspects. If I can get past the five-second soundbite and get into, into those nuances, then I'm probably doing well, so. That's a perfect way to start the the podcast. Awesome.
0: Welcome, this is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast. The podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful changemakers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st century imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant, helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this podcast, I talk with Dale Prest, CEO of the Climate Forest Company, CFC. We talk about the global carbon cycle, and our future ability to reduce both greenhouse gas emissions and existing atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide through more effective forest management practices. Dale puts great value in the role healthy ecosystems play in our well-being and CFC was founded on the belief that forests are our most powerful ally in the fight for a stable climate. As the CEO of CFC, Dale explores and devises strategies to fight climate change through sustainable forest management. For example, by incenting maritime woodlot owners to manage their forest to store carbon. Dale has a Bachelor of Science from Dalhousie University and a Master of Science from St. Francis at Xavier University, where he studied how forest management practices change soil nutrients, including how forest clear-cutting causes the release of significant quantities of CO2 from the soil. Dale started CFC in partnership with New Brunswick-based Community Forest International, CFI, an award-winning international not-for-profit. Working with CFI for five years, designing and building one of the only improved forest management projects in Canada, Dale with CFI demonstrated how carbon emissions markets can be used to rebuild degraded forests, fight climate change, and strengthen rural communities. Dale spends his personal time with family and friends, hiking, canoeing, hunting, and fishing. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dale, great to have you on the podcast today. I thought our listeners would be very interested in hearing from you because you're one of Canada's foremost experts in the carbon cycle of forest ecosystems and have been doing a lot of very important work on addressing the question of how do we deal with the carbon dioxide emissions that are causing climate change? So why don't we start by you telling us the story of how you came to be so passionate and knowledgeable about carbon and its relationship to forest ecosystems.
1: Well, thank. First off, thanks for for inviting me to participate, Craig. I uh, I've done a lot of uh, interviews over the last number of years on this topic, but this is the first podcast interview, so uh, it's an interesting medium, and I'm interested to see how the next hour or so goes. So, I mean, you you and I have known each other for for uh, the past five or six years now, working together in this regards, and you you know, I've got this ongoing love affair with forests that that really I I didn't have a choice in I. I was I was born and raised in in a very rural part of of the Nova Scotia um and you could I really grew up in the middle of the woods quite quite literally um it's kind of remarkable and so my my family has has lived in the same small village for seven or eight generations now and and all all of our our livelihoods our our recreation uh, the the way we we even related with each other was very much tied to the forests that were, were around us. And watching my father, um, a, a small business owner who has built a, a business enterprise in forestry and, and really trying to do right by the forest and manage for healthy forests, seeing him him struggle with this commodity-based industry over the years, trying, trying to, on the one hand, respect the forest and, and, and grow a healthy forest, but on the other hand, keeping upwards of 20 25 employees employed at any given time uh, led me to a pretty acute understanding of, of fu- very fundamentally how economics uh, is driving and has been driving the loss of our forests um, and of course if, if economics can drive the loss of our forests then the, the the inverse is true as well economics can also drive the restoration of our forests and and that's something that you know that love affair with Our forests here in the Eastern Canada is really what led me to look at how it is we can measure and value and and reverse that economic trend to start restoring our forests and at the same time obviously achieve something pretty important which is reduce the amount of carbon in the air. So you actually went from growing up in a forest to
0: Tracking that into your post-secondary education, you have a BSc from Dalhousie University and an MSc from St. Francis Xavier University, where I believe you studied how forest management practices can change soil nutrient conditions, and uh, as we've talked about before, the amount of carbon stored or released into the atmosphere. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that research as sort of a way to ground some
1: of the things we'll be talking about. Sure. I mean, I started my academic career at uh, in, in a forestry school at, at University of British Columbia and it, it was because forestry was the the avenue that I, from my upbringing, understood how you could have a career where you could go in the woods, be in, get paid to walk in the woods all day, which is really my goal. I just want to walk in the woods. And that forestry route, really, I, I found out pretty early on that that wasn't for me. Um, Found myself, you know, a little eighteen-year-old punk kid getting in arguments with my forestry professors about the validity of clear cutting on Vancouver Island, and, and pretty quickly I realized I shouldn't, I shouldn't be in that faculty. Um, no, because so, because for, forestry is more about at least that
0: time about forestry as a resource and how you process a resource into the economy as opposed to how you understand it as an ecosystem and as part of the bigger you know, so biosphere, right?
1: Yeah, and, and that, that is uh, fundamentally, you're right. And I mean, a lot of our, our universities, while they're, they're, there's a lot of well-meaning individuals who are driven by high ideals and, and really want to get down to the, the facts and, and, and science of the matter, the economics of our universities necessitate otherwise. Um, you know, when when you have to build a $42 million building and need to fund it without increases in funding from the provincial government, well, the first place you turn when you're something like a faculty of forestry or to the forest industries that 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 are supporting you or that are in your area, and that can't help but pervert the course of investigation. We, we see it all the time, um, you know, with, with Shell funding this, that, or the other thing, and it can't help, but pervert that course of investigation. So those are, there are obviously, um, some issues. What about
0: inspirations? Were there, um, some professors or writers or
1: thought leaders at the time that really inspired you when you were a student? Sure. So, I mean, coming back around a bit to your, your question. I ended up at at deciding that a, a more traditional bachelor of science in in focus on ecology or biology was more appropriate for me because I had the backgrounds in forestry. I, I knew how to I knew the, the operations on the industrial side of things very well. And I what what it was was really the science that I wanted to understand better because and, and this this really gets to you know the the thinking of uh, an idealistic uh, early twenty something. Um, I figured that, well, if you could just, if you could just demonstrate that these things are true, if you could, we could just nail down the fact we could just convince all these climate deniers that the climate change is actually happening. Well, lo and behold, policy will follow suit and, and the world will change and there'll be rainbows everywhere. And so in those early days, a lot of my inspirations, you know, I remember, uh, you know, E.O. Wilson was a bit of a, a bit of a celebrity for me. Of course, which, which, which evolutionary biology? Yeah, the diversity of life. You know, um, he was one of my heroes as well. Yeah, and 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 that that was really where I was at um, in terms of my mindset. You know, some of my uh, professors who were very well published had uh, were identified as academic leaders and and, and successful academics in the published uh, science. You know, those were the people that I really looked up to, and and I found. i'm a fairly assertive person i wouldn't hesitate to walk up to those professors at the end of the class and and working with them more and more Um, more often than not i I found myself a a little disappointed you know we we often are in our inspirations and in our our idols but one thing that was a bit of a hard reality or a hard lesson for me was that um, academic excellence did not equate to action and uh, that was something that I, I became incredibly frustrated with because um, academics, I, I, I truly believe, are very much in a position of of privilege and in uh, and authority and have a very significant voice. And, uh, and And so, when when I whenever I felt that someone uh, someone ought to have been speaking out when they when they weren't, it was a little disappointing for me. So, what about now? Who most inspires you now? And who are some of the key
0: thinkers on sustainable forests and sustainability in general? Who you most admire and why?
1: You know, um, I've been really fortunate to be able to work with some of the, who I believe some of those inspirational people um, uh, doing some of the most amazing things um, these days. And what I lift my, take my hat off to these days with, with people um, who are inspiring me are, are the people who are are not waiting around, making excuses for themselves or accepting any excuses from anyone else and are just throwing down to affect some kind of change that they need to see in the world. Uh, entrepreneurs, in the very true sense of the word, people not necessarily limited to the private sector, but people who are who are, you know, at, at all orders of magnitude, whether it's at the hyper-local scale or at the large macro level, the people who are willing to, to put themselves out sacrifice a certain level of personal comfort to affect some kind of change that they need to see in the world and build their values into innovative business models and 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 not not in a preachy way but really you know wanting to see a change in the world undertaking an action to affect that change at a large scale and really focus people are really focused on those results who are are results focused and 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 really able to make shifts in behavior large-scale shifts in behavior not in a holier than thou way but in a more insidious sort of uh way that undermines the the status quo which is you know really what what needs to happen at this point
0: so can you give me some examples of some of the people that would fit that description
1: it's it's interesting because i it, I find it really inspiring at, at all levels, at all orders of magnitude. You know, there's, there's a, a woodlot owner farmer that I know that lives on, uh, in Lunenburg County in Nova Scotia. And uh, he and his family has been able to monetize their healthy, beautiful forests that they have by growing Christmas trees, organic Christmas trees that they use no pesticide spray on. And every Christmas they hold a Yukot Christmas tree where they come people show up at their farm with their children and they park at the farm out in front and he puts them on a a, a wagon a, a horse-drawn wagon takes them through the gorgeous woodlock creates this experience for them as, as cookies and hot chocolate and as a result he's able to sell those christmas trees for about 10 times what he would get on the wholesale markets for those trees um, and creates this experience for people that draws people from hours away to drive down every year with their kids is a Christmas tradition. And it's because people like being in that healthy, uh, diverse, rich forest. And that's how they've monetized the value. One way that they've monetized the value of of a a rich forest that people can feel. So it's not a big monoculture of Christmas trees. He's got it integrated into his woodlot. 10, 20 different species all around. And and the Christmas trees are there uh, just a an integrated part of it. Um, at, at the really local scale, those people who are you know making those things work, new business models that people are flocking to, and, and that are driving new value back into into our rural communities, I find that I find that inspiring in a in a heartwarming way. But you you take that to the other the other end of the spectrum, and you can't help but you know to, again take your hat off to someone like Elon Musk, who's really just like the guy's going through hell and it's because he has this vision and part of that vision is um, transportation vehicular transportation that doesn't require the burning of fossil fuels and he's doing everything he can at at an incredibly large scale they're burning through hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter to realize this vision that this guy's got and this product that they've been able to develop it's not that they're trying to convince people to buy a Tesla because it doesn't burn fossil fuels. It, people are turning to Teslas because they are a, just flat out superior product. You know, you look at the moving parts in an, an internal combustion engine car versus a, a an electric car. You're talking about eighty moving parts in an electric car and eighteen thousand in internal combustion engine. You know, the the, yep. the energy conversion efficiency, the user experience, the performance of the thing. Like they're just hands down superior. Oh, and by the way, you can also feel good because you're doing the right green thing. To me, that's an insidious way that that, that business model is undercutting the, the fossil fuel status quo um, in a way that can win over everybody without making it a moral question. And when yeah. you take that morality out of the equation, that morality turns off probably the two good uh, standard deviations of people under the bell curve, right? That moral high ground, often a lot of people, when they, they feel that they're being spoon fed or force fed, that they, they, they shut off especially in the climate debate that's why climate uh, policy is not about science uh, it's 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 about politics and identity and so when you when you see people you know it, you had Jeff Schner on. Um, you, he was your first interview for the first podcast. Similarly, Jazz Energy. In fact, he was the guy that actually helped name the podcast. In, in <laughs> you got it. Yeah.
0: And I mean, it, Jazz is doing the same thing. So, so you know what? Interesting. Talking about Elon Musk. What I thought was so smart about what he did, and I, I, I assume that this was part of it. Before the Tesla came on the scene, all the electric vehicles were sort of in the mode of the Prius. They were humble Mm -hmm. and they were sort of awkward looking and they didn't go very far and they weren't too expensive. I mean, they were, they were somewhere in the the range of what a, you know, middle-class person might be able to afford if they were green. But Tesla came along and said, we're bling. Like if you're a rock star, you can afford us. If you are rich, you can afford us. And all the other green people were like, wow, I'd love to have one, but I can't. But as a result, it People wanted them. Yeah. They were a desirous object, and so now when he's making more affordable ones, all, they come with a oh, I can have that Mercedes or that Jaguar green Jaguar thing now. Yeah. Um, in fact, he designed it to sort of look like a Jaguar. But anyway, it was it was brilliant, and and I think. It's, it's probably um, pioneered the market of electric cars. I mean, yeah. it just so leveraged it. But let, let's, let's go from talking about the individual to the bigger picture. Uh, one of the things uh, that I really want to talk to, to you about or have you t- tell listeners about is how the carbon cycle works in the biosphere. Uh, I, I think everyone pretty much understands that we've got a huge problem with carbon emissions But I think they just imagine CO2 going to the atmosphere and the global warming resulting. And that's about the extent of it. But as you and I both know, the carbon cycle is integral to the functioning of the biosphere. So I'm wondering if you could, in layman's language, in under half an hour, sort of talk a bit about the carbon cycle. Because it's really going to contextualize a lot of the other questions that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so is, we, that, is
1: that is that reasonable it, to ask, or it, like, it, is it? Well, well, you know, it's insane. a great thing that we're recording this because if I can get this down, then every uh, tenth grade science <laughs> teacher in the world will want to listen to it. But, but okay, uh, well, that's good. We have
0: all the time. There's there's no I there's just, no sort of like like cut off here. Well,
1: you know, it's 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 not an easy thing to, to explain, and I'm 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 not really going to take too much of a stab at it because I I went and I did what anyone now does, which is Google uh, climate change metaphor. Uh, carbon cycle metaphor, and they're terrible. There's one out there about Tetris not even going to go there. I mean, that, but for the purposes of our conversation right now, um, and how how the role that forests can play in, in the whole climate uh, stability thing, the way that I kind of conceptualize it in, in my own head is that, that we've got this jar of water that is filling up, and it's got tap going into it which is you know burning fossil fuels so it's got a couple taps going into it the big one burning fossil fuels coal gas oil and then there's there's other taps that are coming out of it that can allow the the jar that's filling up to empty out and so if we don't want that jar to overflow, we don't want too much carbon into the atmosphere um, then we've either got to slow down the taps that are filling it up, or right. we've got to increase the taps that are draining it the off. The carbon dioxide but, going out, the carbon going out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so when you look at the taps that are going into the jar, fossil fuel burning fossil fuels are the big one, but people don't often realize that about 20% of our total greenhouse gas emissions, 20% of those taps is from um, what we do to forests, basically clear them for agriculture, we burn them, we cut them down too much. Like About 20% of the, the human's contribution to carbon in the atmosphere is um, from what how we're treating our, our forests. And so when we're talking about how to achieve some, some relative stability, we've got to be looking at, it's, it's not just a question of how can we slow down those taps that are filling the jar up. We also need to be looking at How can we get as much water out of that jar as possible by increasing the flow out? I think that's
0: that's really helpful to give people an idea of of the bigger picture. Um, And I think most people understand that CO2 is creating an insulating effect and causing an increase in global temperatures. But maybe you can explain how carbon dioxide... That is produced from fossil fuel combustion, as well as you're mentioning from forest management or lack of forest management, is affecting the carbon cycle. So, so like, what are those two constituent parts doing to the biosphere? What are the impact other than global warming? What kinds of things are happening? Like, for example, the acidification of the oceans and so forth. Like, sure. what are the other pieces of the puzzle that we should be thinking
1: about? You, you know what we? Uh, it's one of those things that you don't know that it's happening until 20 years after it started happening, and so. So we're really, all the time, we're learning these new changes. I mean, immediately we, we we know that if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by a little bit, you'll actually see an increase in growth in plants, right? Often you'll hear climate change deniers saying, oh, it's just going to make the world greener, blah, blah, blah. And, and to a certain extent, that's true, but it stops. It only works for a little bit, a, a very small increase of carbon in the atmosphere. So... So forests have been, you know, they have trees, plants in general have a better ability to grow with a little bit more carbon in the atmosphere, but we're well past that point now. Um, Yeah, I've actually heard that there's research
0: showing that uh, rice and grains have lower nutrient counts because of the increased carbon dioxide. So they're growing faster, but they're not processing the nutrients out of the soil faster. So there's all those sort of unintended consequences.
1: Another thing that people don't often think of you know where we, people are aware of acidification of the oceans but when you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you actually make the rain more acidic as well water going through that carbon dioxide picks up carbonic acid which then deposits on the ground and so uh, in in that acidification when it goes down through the forest floor and into the soil it often causes aluminum poisoning which then limits plant growth and basically poisons plants so there's a whole bunch of these negative impacts here here in in nova scotia for example one thing we're realizing is that a certain kind of tree that doesn't like acidic soil is not really regenerating in in a lot of its historic range so it's a whole tree species that potentially is getting pushed out by this stuff climate change is 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 it's throwing everything out of whack we're seeing fish off the coast here that are we never saw before um we're seeing pests move north and move west just the climactic impacts alone are are really throwing the the entire system out of whack and our systems our ecological systems our forest systems have a certain amount of ability to, to weather that change they can buffer it but because we've got so many people on the planet now uh, birds animals plants can't just move the way they could before and the rate of change that this is happening at is far exceeding the natural ability of our ecosystems to shift they had a certain amount of, of, of natural ability to migrate northward with historic climate changes that were like a thousandth the speed yeah. of what we see going on now. So, how can we help those forests move north? Is is another question that we're grappling with um, for the first time. So,
0: I think that leads to another question. You and I have both talked over the years about um, the kind of strategies that could be um, deployed for for making forests or forest ecosystems part of the solution for reducing existing and growing levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, do you realize that we're now like coming up to 408 parts per million in the atmosphere? When when I started talking about climate change like 10 years ago, it was like, oh, someday we'll reach 400. I think it was like 387 at the time. Now we're like 408. So how do we use forests? As a strategy for sequestering carbon, when forest ecosystems themselves are in flux, like ooh, where's the balance here? What what can we do that's that's reasonable and smart?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first question you asked me on the podcast was, uh, "What are the challenges that I have explaining uh, carbon credits to people, carbon offsets to people?" Well, one of the other challenges I have with respect to forests is is explained to people that not all forests are equal. Right, absolutely. You know, we know that the tropical forests in, in uh, places like Brazil, the Amazon is a very different forest than what we have in northern Canada, which is a boreal. But even within Canada, there are, there are um, multiple different forest types. Um, and, and when you get into the southern part of Canada, you have what's known as a temperate forest. Same in southern Ontario, the Pacific Northwest, it stretches all the way up the coast. And that temperate forest that extends down well into the States and around the world, you know, much of Europe, um, China, um, that forest uh, in general is, is a really great forest at storing carbon and uh, here in the Maritimes we have the Acadian Forest that I talk about most often but it's the same in o- Ontario with the Great Lakes Forest, it's a forest type that doesn't naturally burn which is a really important distinction between it and for example the pine forests and the mountains of BC. Before, uh, before the First Nations showed up um, and settled uh, here on the East Coast, it, it's estimated that our forests would burn once every 3,000 years, which is basically, it, it just didn't burn. The forest just didn't burn. And so our forests, the more carbon they have in them, the healthier they are. Our forests want to hold carbon. They want to store carbon. And, and it's this incredible thing. Um, you know, Trees are, are quite literally... Forests are quite literally carbon made tangible, and I don't mean that in an abstract or metaphorical sense. Like, like trees take gaseous carbon and turn them into something you can lay your hand right. on. Right, cellulose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, how is it that we can use forests to fight climate change? Well, I, I, I like I like to tell people that, kind of jokingly, if you were a, if you were a a an inventor, if you were a, an entrepreneur who invented a machine that does what a tree does, you would be on. The cover of every magazine around the world instantaneously you know think about it just in terms of machine they're solar powered you can uh, leave them outside through all sorts of weather they do just fine they take this bad thing which is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and turn it into a miracle material which is cellulose we can do anything with cellulose and better than that when these machines when they start to get old and break down they actually replace themselves all at no cost to you forests really are um, our, our greatest asset in the fight against climate change in terms of trying to drain the, that jar of as much water as possible.
0: So really your company, the Climate Forest Company, is predicated
1: on that notion. That's exactly it. And what we're, what our challenge is, is to build the business model that allows for that transfer of value to happen, that puts that monetary value on the amount of carbon that a forest stores and the amount of carbon stored in the products that come from that forest and compensates people um, accordingly.
0: Yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit about it because I think it's a really uh, innovative concept. So just talk a bit about the Climate Forest Company and what you guys are doing.
1: Sure, I mean, uh, without getting uh, too far into the, into the history um, of, of uh, our origins, um, the Climate Forest Company recently was launched out of a, an initiative with a, a not-for-profit that I've worked with um, for the last six or eight years called Community Forest International. And what we've, what we've done is, is created the Climate Forest Company to take something that, that was, has been a very successful internal project to us, which is valuing and monetizing the amount of carbon stored in a forest to promote f- responsible forest management and forest conservation, and take that to a regional scale. When you look around the world, there are not very many things that we can do that have a, with respect to the climate and carbon emissions, that has geological impact, that can move the needle At orders of magnitude that are geologically significant, you know, uh, billions, literally billions and tens of billions of tons of carbon. There's not very much we can do that affects that. And forests are one such geological scale lever. Uh, People who model the climate have suggested that quite reasonably our forests could reduce the temperature in the atmosphere by 2100 by a full degree Celsius. Right, that's 25 percent of the warming that's being predicted by some of the GCM models um, that are out there, and 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 a quarter of it alone could come from just growing a few more trees and keeping them there. And so the Climate Forest Company, um, we've launched the Climate Forest Company to do just that. Because like like I was saying earlier, um, if economics can lead to the destruction of our forests, it can lead to the restoration of our forests. And if we make forests worth more standing then they're worth cut down then that switch will flip overnight and and that change will will go linear and and the actual product you're selling
0: is what a combination of forest management for woodlot owners and on the other side offset sales to cover the the management or talk a little bit about that just so people know and and we'll put a we'll put a link to the company or information about it on the podcast blog as well so people can go see it thanks greg
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a couple different avenues that we're pursuing to monetize the climate change fighting values of these forests. Uh, The most traditional um, way that this has been done and and what we've had some success with to date has been by uh, measuring and monitoring the amount of carbon stored in a forest, Uh, comparing that to the amount of carbon that's stored in, in the average forest in our region and then monetizing the difference between those two amounts as a carbon offset credit and selling those carbon offset credits to uh, corporations and businesses who, who um, emit carbon into the atmosphere as a part of their business model can't get down to zero because it would break their business model and pay us to do it on their behalf allowing them to to be uh, carbon neutral so with the emergent carbon pricing programs across the country Provinces have turned to um, the use of carbon offset credits as a way to keep the cost of, of reducing greenhouse gas emissions a bit lower for regulated industries. And so we've been uh, gearing up to um, meet some of those needs and some of that market demand um, through those regulated markets as well. So I mentioned that there's a couple different ways we're, we're, we're monetizing this. And the, the other way, one, one interesting way that uh, we've been um, working on is the brand value to product manufacturers of being able to have their products associated with these forests that actually are pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere than than is being emitted. So I want to talk about
0: carbon offsets and how you define them. But before I do, um, I was chatting with um, one of my colleagues at Dialog and uh, we got talking about carbon offsets because dialogue offsets all of its carbon through CFI. Uh, and um, one of the things that came up was, well, what about all these forest fires? We're seeing forest fires up and down the West Coast. We're seeing them into the Boreal Forest above Alberta. We're seeing them just north of Perry Sound in Ontario. So, so although there are localized sites, there's lots of them and they're getting a lot of press. In fact, I just picked up the uh, August 4th to 10th, Copy The Economist and there's a picture of uh, these guys trying to put out a fire and it's called In the Line of Fire, Losing the War Against Climate Change. So I think forests are now a big issue because of them burning and producing CO2. So maybe talk a little bit about that as an issue in the bigger picture.
1: Sure. I mean, I mean it's it's again, it's important to realize that there are different types of forests um, and, and some forests, a lot of forests burn naturally, especially the forests in British Columbia and the interior of British Columbia, much of the boreal forest has a fairly regular um, schedule on which it, it burns. And, uh, and, and you can think of it as, um, you know, there's a certain amount of natural burning that happens that causes a certain amount of natural emissions. So the, the climate naturally has these big inputs of carbon from our forest fires. Now, if we're starting to see more forest fires, well, then that's more carbon going into the atmosphere, and that's that's a problem. Um, however, what you've got to look at is what is that balance? And so if, if we know that we've got more carbon going into the atmosphere from forest fires, it means that, well, we probably need to be acting elsewhere to make sure that we're pulling even more out. Um, a lot of the fires that are happening right now, interestingly um, enough, uh, in especially in British Columbia, um, we've been wildly... Sp- Was spectacularly successful over the last 100 years in suppressing forest fires Just the smoky bear campaigns and all that is unbelievably successful and what that's allowed for is these forests that naturally burn and have have these experience these low intensity fires on a 40 to 60 year interval um that that goes through and it's they're like ground fires that creep through and they burn up a lot of the brush and the twigs that fall down and the dead trees that fall down But a lot of the standing live trees survive and they get through it douglas fir can have six inch thick bark on it to insulate it from from these types of fires um but once you put a halt on those fires you see that that litter and the dead trees and stuff start to accumulate you're just piling up fuel exactly and 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 so you know um craig you asked about who inspires me another group that inspires me is is uh these are these guys out of berkeley california a uh, group of group of artists who um, they actually started. They 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 were going to Burning Man every year, and they had an installation that they want needed electricity for, but they didn't want to use fossil fuels. This is back in the nineties, and so they came up with this. They they saw a picture from the World War II where um, a car was being run off of uh, pieces of wood, off of firewood, and what it was was a if if you take cellulose and you you heat it up and don't give it any oxygen. Um, a lot of the hydrogen on the cellulose gasifies, and you can in, put that into an internal combustion engine and run a car with it. Well, these guys, over the last 10, 15 years, have in, in Berkeley, all power labs, they've built this uh, small scale gasifier um, and, and what, uh, that, that takes wood debris and generates electricity and heat from it. Quite an efficient process. But what they've recently received a grant from the California, uh, some California department. To develop a uh, slightly larger one that fits in a 20-foot shipping container that can be taken to uh, moved around from site to site and and what it's to do is is they're going to send forestry crews in to collect this brush and stuff up and bring it out and they want to be able to turn that into electricity fossil fuel free electricity and so that's not just a way to get carbon-free electricity in there But it's also a way to control those fuel loads of the dead branches and stuff accumulating to fireproof the forest and that's especially around places like Kamloops and Kelowna that's really what we need to be doing is looking at these more proactive measures it's that same thing where you can look at something as a challenge or you can frame it as as an opportunity opportunity. and when you frame it as an opportunity here's all this fuel that we could be using to generate electricity and employ people and if we just would be you know, employ a little of that good old capitalist innovation that everyone likes to talk about. If we just use some of that ingenuity, these could all be opportunities rather than, you know, challenges to to um, run from.
0: So often, these issues seem to be coordination issues, coordinating the the uh, supply and the demand. Mm. And I mean, that's that's one of the big challenges in a co- in a capitalist economy. Um, so. Carbon offsets are one of the things that you guys are are selling. And I know just in talking to uh, peers and colleagues that there's some real ambivalence about carbon offsets. And I think they have a bad rap. They're sometimes called a moral hazard, that uh, people are worried that you're buying an indulgence for your sins. Um, So I, I think it's worth talking about the reality of what Good carbon or authentic carbon offsets are. I know you, they're carbon offset brokers that you n- never know what you're getting for it. But what constitutes a good or authentic or real or scientifically backed carbon offset?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question. I, I, I think the the critical thing about carbon offset credits and 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 they've they've. Um, you know, they've, they've gotten a bad rap over the last uh, decade and a half, and, and some of that has settled out recently, but, but it, was, it was for very good reasons. There were a lot of fraudulent actors running around making wild claims in some of the work that uh, CFI has done in, uh, in, in Tanzania. We, we experienced that firsthand with, with nefarious actors showing up with bags of money and having to you know, tell them to get lost. Um, but I think there's been a lot of maturation within the industry, within the sector, and a lot of uh, good checks and balances, third-party processes have been built um, to, to really ensure what a, a genuine carbon offset credit is, what it constitutes. But the most important thing about carbon offsets is putting them in a context. And this is often what I, I find uh, is lacking. Carbon offsets are a short to medium-term solution to help us carbon out of the atmosphere and reduce our emissions and buy us some time while we're developing the technology and infrastructure required to get ourselves down to zero emissions mid-century because that's where we need to be full stop you know we need to be at zero emissions and we need to be at negative emissions pretty quickly thereafter and so carbon offset credits are just one way that we can buy ourselves a little bit of time to get ourselves there and so, um, uh, short, short term, because forests don't have infinite capacity. Well, and, and not just that. Um, if there's excess capacity there from our forests to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, that capacity is already spoken for. We need to not just be focused on stabilizing greenhouse gas emissions, we need to get them back down to that 270, 350 parts per million type level. This is what the Drawdown Institute, uh, again, out of uh, California, I think Stanford or Berkeley, um, what they, they've they been looking at. They're a really interesting group as well. So the carbon offset credits that, that, that we generate are from what are known as improved forest management projects. And the basis of that is acknowledging that that traditional forestry economics, cutting trees down and selling logs, drives a certain type of forest management. And that forest management, more often than not, is clear-cutting as quickly as possible as is economically appropriate. And, and here in, in Atlantic Canada, we're at the point where we're clear cutting our trees every 30 40 50 years um, and this is in a forest type that naturally has 500 year old trees in it and so that's the free hand of the market that's what it has decided is appropriate here in our part of the world and so uh, our carbon offset credits are created when we step in and break that process and say look normally you'd store X amount of carbon on, on your land through this type of forestry. What if we paid you to, to bump it up, to store 20 tons per hectare, more than that. And that's exactly what we do is by going in and measuring and confirming and monitoring that there's actually more carbon stored there than there would be otherwise more carbon stored there than is stored on average across the entire provincial landscape. Um, the additional amount of carbon that's stored there can be is monetized as a carbon offset credit, and landowners, and it's pri- primarily private landowners that we work with. They commit to a hundred-year commitment period, um, so that carbon needs to be stayed and monitored. Stay in that forest and needs to be monitored for a period of one hundred years before the contract is up, and that's fundamentally because um, if you emit a ton of carbon out of the tailpipe of your car the average amount of time it's going to spend in the atmosphere is about 100 years. That's why scientists say, oh, there's a lag with warming. Well, yeah, because because carbon, it stay, it doesn't just go up there and get used up. It goes up there and stays up there for 100 years. So if you're going to grow trees that have a climate impact, they need to be on the land for at least 100 years. And of course, we we still allow for ongoing forest management to happen because there are two things you need to be worried about. And when you're storing carbon in a forest, one is how much you store, the other is how securely it's stored there. So, for example, if you have big areas with one species of tree that are all the same age and they get old and start to die, well, an insect's going to come in and that and they're going to eat those trees and that carbon is going to get emitted into the air. By doing proactive um, forest management, you can actually go in and 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 manage Harvesting. that risk yeah. and reduce the risk in such a way that results in a higher quality of carbon. So that's, that's the fundamentals of how we, we uh, create a carbon offset.
0: So what are um, the biggest obstacles of getting buy-in from both the woodlot owners on the one hand and the offset purchases on the other?
1: Yes. I mean, to explain for a little bit of context here in the Maritimes, um, Nova Scotia, for example, about se- well, 70% of the, the forest land in Nova Scotia is owned by private individuals. You compare that to British Columbia it's 5%. Um, so Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island are very unique in the rest of Canada in that they have a very high percentage of private land ownership. And that average private landowner owns about 100 acres. And and just to give your the listeners a, a bit of an understanding of what the value of that might look like, you know, anywhere from 3 to 6, 700 dollars an acre for forest land is 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 kind of the going market price. So we're talking about a significant asset, but we're not talking about you know, 100 acres that's uh, two hours outside of Toronto in terms of land value. So these, these tend to be primarily rural individuals. These tend to be um, people who are, are living very closely to the land. And, and we know that our rural communities are lagging behind our, our urban communities in terms of uh, net income. So these don't tend to be necessarily um, uh, independently wealthy uh, individuals. So those private landowners that we're working with, they've been they've been trying to fit a lot of them made in our baby boomers and made investments in in these forests as a part of their retirement income. Um, and now they're realizing that, while well, these commodity markets are the, the, the lumber markets and the pulp markets that are our industries are trying to compete with here that they thought they were going to sell their products to. Well, they're trying to compete with the Brazils of the world who can grow trees in five years that take us 50 years. And so uh, a lot of the economics around small forest management and ownership have broken down severely um, over the last 20, 25 years. So a lot of landowners who are of that age and of that opinion are really interested in any new revenue stream and are are more than interested in, in getting on board with this. We've been engaging with uh, literally millions of acres worth of landowners over the last three, four years, and people want to do the right thing. They want to treat the land with respect. They want to treat the forest with respect. They want to leave valuable assets as an intergenerational heirloom. However, if your retirement savings aren't going to come through and you your car broke down and your spouse is in the hospital, you know you do what it takes. Right. You do what it takes to get by. And so we're... Um, the 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 prospect of being able to get paid for some of the the valuable services that their forests provide to society that currently they're providing to society out of uh, for free um, landowners are all about that they're very interested in that on the supply side of things people are there and people are ready to go like I said forest land under the current economics under timber forestry economics is not worth that much out here right. Surely it's worth more as a, a way to keep this planet from cooking than it is for cheap pulp and two by fours to feed into Georgia. Um uh, not that I have anything against Georgia, lovely state. But on the on the demand side of things, um, what we've really been focused at because we we want to see this go forward at a regional and national level. We want to we want to see the needle move on hundreds of thousands and, and mi- millions of acres here. Um, we've been focused on the markets that are being created as a result of the Federal Liberals carbon pricing mandate. It's often framed as a carbon tax but in, in about half of the provinces it's manifests itself as a cap-and-trade program and carbon offsets fit into carbon ta- both a carbon tax and a cap-and-trade program very well. The simplest way to think about it is that if you're being taxed $20 a ton for the emissions you're generating and we can pull your carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and give you a credit for uh, for that ton at, at $18, and you get, a, you get a net savings of $2 a ton, and that has value to you as a company. And if you look at uh, jurisdictions where these cap and trade markets have been operating, you know, in the EU since uh, the mid-2000s, in California, even better example since uh, 2010 or 2011, there's been about a billion dollars worth of carbon offset credits generated for that market. Um, that's that's about 100 million tons that have been created for that market. And, and every year, tens of millions of dollars uh, are trading hands in exchange for the right to pollute from, from petrochemical companies, from, from uh, utilities that have gas plants. They've already built this carbon price into their books. They know what it's going to cost them. And so uh, in the United States, as a result of that California market that was created, There are projects on the scale of uh, two, 300,000 acres of the type of project that we are developing that are coming on online seemingly every couple months to feed that market. And that's where we're positioning ourselves is to meet that same demand um, as the carbon pricing mandate kicks in uh, this January.
0: So where do forests fit in with respect to CH4 methane. We've been talking about carbon dioxide, and anyone that understands basic um, tree biology or plant biology, you have light, you have CO2, and you have water and photosynthesis, and it turns the CO2 into sugars, and you get uh, oxygen out. But what do we do about methane? Because right now, methane is the um, greenhouse gas that not a lot of people are talking about, uh, or at least not not uh, lay people. But it's being produced by fugitive emissions, like emissions when they're when they're uh, fracking and taking uh, uh, methane out of the ground it's being produced out of the permafrost as it starts to melt. And then there are these horrendous things called methane clathrates, which are these big, huge chunks of ice filled with methane off our coasts. So where do forest ecosystems fit into that or do they, or what, what are we going to do about the methane issue?
1: Yeah. You know, methane, and especially those uh, methyl hydrates off the coast are one of the, uh, the paralysis-inducing parts of talking about climate change, you know, they're... they're you, mean, you mean another way of saying that it scares the shit out of her? Absolutely. And I, to be honest, yeah. I try not to talk about it a whole lot because, um, you know, to, you, you, you referenced a couple sources of, of, of uh, emissions of methane there. The biggest three, you, you, you hit on two of them, um, one being um, escaping from natural gas, fracked wells especially. Um, methane coming being unlocked by the permafrost melting and uh, methyl hydrates and and there's only really one of those that we really have any amount of control over and that is the amount of escaped gas from uh, natural gas wells the more we look into how much methane's coming out of these fracked wells and and just escaping from a lot of well heads we're realizing that natural gas is easily as dirty as as uh regular fossil fuels like oil and, and, and coal, getting close to Yeah, it, it,
0: it burns clean, but there's a lot released in the um, atmosphere as fugitive of emissions. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So is there a metabolic route for, for methane in the, in the atmosphere that the forest can do anything about?
1: Yeah, so every one ton of methane has the same climate-changing impact as about 28 tons of carbon dioxide.
0: That's right. Methane has 100 times more insulative value when it's first released co2 and then over the lifetime it 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 averages that at 25 times more insulated
1: a shorter lifetime in the air to go back to our our jar of water analogy um when we start to unlock sources of methane from places like the permafrost and from uh methyl hydrates off the coast that's like a fire hose going into that jar of water and so if we counteract that by commensurately reducing our emissions of carbon dioxide and the types of greenhouse gas emissions we have control over perhaps we can weather that storm but the the best insurance we have is not letting the damn things get out there in the first place we need to be that's why we need to be saying well back of things like two degrees of warming two degrees of warming is flirting with some of those those impact routes. so it's some of those unlocking some of those sources of methane um so far as trees go and metabolizing methane in the atmosphere I'm sure there's something going on there with bacteria and whatnot that we haven't even discovered yet but insurance and and not letting the climate change that much is is the best policy we've got right it's a bleak keep, keep it locked up Greg. as long <laughs> keep it
0: locked up as long as possible yeah 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 i know so how optimistic are you that we'll be able to implement some of the co2 Uh, mitigation strategies the the offsets and and other strategies like what do you think
1: you know it's uh when when i think about the the practical realities of doing this uh, which is to say of, of of keeping our emissions down and getting to zero emissions i'm really encouraged because solar panels are unbelievably cheap we have germany to thank for that um, we've got electric cars coming on at a price point that the the majority of the, the the middle class can afford, and not only that. Once these companies start to really compete to try to produce electric cars, they're going to get a lot cheaper. They're going to get a lot cheaper, a lot faster. So that transportation game is not a problem. The electricity game is not a problem. Batteries are are getting there, right? Like we we know how to do it, and and so far as the ability of our forests to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, like. All we have to do is stop cutting them that's all we have to do we actually don't have to do anything we just have to not do something else um or at least clear cutting them and to give listeners a
0: a sort of sense of the the scale of that i remember you telling me once that uh depending on the type of forest uh, but i think you said a temperate forest if you cut it clear cut it it releases 60 percent of the carbon that was stored by that forest out of the ground is that correct
1: yeah yeah and we're still nailing it down and it depends that number down it depends on the soil and climate in an area yada 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 but but a a huge amount and it it continues to release it for like 40 50 years after it's cut that's what we've been missing all along one really interesting thing um is that about twice as much carbon stored in the top meter of soil as is stored in all the trees combined on that square meter so um twice as much carbon in the soil like soil is a huge reservoir so if we've been doing things to our forests and to our run out agricultural soils has been resulting in a loss of carbon above ground there's twice as much of a carbon sink below ground waiting to soak up carbon if we just get around to it right we can do it we can right. absolutely implement affordably the, implement the trees strategies. are pump, pumping it into the soil well i mean just just uh trees uh, any given tree between uh 20 and 60 percent of the Sugars that a tree produces through photosynthesis get injected into the soil as uh, as e- root exudates. Um, that's to feed the mycorrhizal network and the whole soil ecosystem that that helps feed the trees in turn. Right. Um, life of trees. That's that that's a that's a good one. Have you read that yet, Craig? Yes, I have.
0: Yes, it's uh, the secret. I think it is a secret life of secret trees. Secret life of
1: trees. You got it. That's right. So I mean, like, we'll like, we'll
0: put that on the blog. We'll put the link to that on the blog.
1: <laughs> but no. Um, Trees will pump carbon into our soils like they'll do it. The tree is what we need. So the practical reality is we could do it tomorrow. We could do it affordably tomorrow. And not only that, we could actually like we could really improve our quality of life. Nova Scotia recently undertook a program to replace all the incandescent street lamps with LED street lamps. It was a three year payback because, of course, LEDs are so much more efficient. And and it was a big hubbub at the time. Are we going to do it? Are we not? well, you move forward five years now. The stars are so much nicer, like the, just the, the quality of life of walking out back and seeing more stars. Right. And that's kind of a nice little microcosm for climate change. Not only do we keep the planet from cooking, but like we, we there are so many ancillary benefits that go along with getting fossil fuels out of our lives and growing more trees and and just just everything. I mean, the politics of it are are, are the depressing part. And, you know, I, I'd like to remind myself that nothing is linear and we, we, we go two steps forward, one step back. Right now is particularly a, a frustrating time um, with, with, you know, populist politicians giving very politically expedient and, and just straight up lazy excuses uh, for people to feel that, oh, we don't have to change anything. We don't have to do anything. The fears that I feel, I don't have to feel that because it's all hooey. The political reality of it is, uh, is the question. I heard someone say recently that winning slowly on the climate change file is the same as losing. Yes, yes, and absolutely. And that's what I fear the most. Yeah. Are we going to get our acts together quickly enough? And are is, we gonna- is the
0: pain of climate change going to motivate us fast enough? Yeah, that's the big question. You mentioned uh, community well being. Um, previously, in your role at Community Forest International, you were involved in developing a strategy for linking sustainable forest management with community development and well being can you talk a bit about the importance of that linkage and how it fits into the bigger picture of reducing harm, adapting to climate change and repairing the environmental damage we've already done. I think that linkage is something we haven't talked about. We've talked about the science, but it would be worthwhile talking about that linkage to
1: community. Yeah. I mean, this is like, I think, I think I, I always had a bit of an inherent understanding of this, but it was something that really came into focus with a lot of our work in, in Tanzania. And, um, um, for, for for listeners out there who are interested we, we do unbelievable community force international does unbelievable work on on one of the zanzibari islands called pemba check check out the website forceinternational.org um, some really incredible grassroots work going on over there but um but one of the things that that we kind of realized and and you see it here as well is that um if we're not taking care of the people who are on the front lines and who live in 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 amongst these natural environments like there's no hope. It's, it's the people that do the real work. It's, it's the people on the front lines that, that need to be taken care of. We will club the last dodo bird to feed our starving children. We will do that right. knowingly. Yeah. Um, humans have proven time and again. And so, if we're not taking care of the socioeconomic side of it and the, the human aspect of communities, then we're, we're not going to get anywhere. One of the big projects in, in Tanzania that we kind of cut our teeth on was tree planting and it's difficult to convince people to to plant trees and restore degraded agricultural land when they're just straight up farming for for their food that night and 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 for a living um you know when people have more pressing concerns they don't have the luxury of being concerned about a healthy environment and so we we need to find a way to link the well-being of people with the well-being of the environment in a, in an immediate way not a not a 10 years down the road 50 years down the road grandchildren sort of way but on on a day-to-day basis. And so that's why, you know, our focus in working with private landowners here, the system that we're building, the business model that we're building around, uh, essentially sees uh, the the revenue from the sale of carbon offset go into what is essentially a a pension fund that pays out over the hundred year lifetime of the carbon offset project, such that Um, Every year, these landowners get a little bit of money, a little check from a return from their pension investment that reminds them why we're beholden to this contract, why we're not cutting all the trees down at once, but also provides that intergenerational piece as well. Because if all of a sudden you can do your business planning out something like 100 years, then all of a sudden um, you're you're able to indenture a completely different relationship with the land, a different relationship with uh, future generations. And it's back to the, the, that First Nations uh, concept of thinking forward seven generations when, when, when making decisions today.
0: I think um, talking about the relationship between community and the forests is worthwhile looking at, at a larger scale. Um, I want to talk a bit about cities. Just over 50% of the world's population now lives in cities and by 2050, close to 70% is uh, expected to be living in cities. What about opportunities for cities to use urban forests to help deal with the fast emerging impacts of climate change? We usually, when we talk about forests, we think about regional forests or um, uh, rural forests. What about urban forests, city forests? Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest value that urban forests have, outside of aesthetic and and recreational values, it's less about the uh, amount of carbon that a forest stores than it is the change in what's known as the urban heat island effect. So the cooling impact that trees have at a very local level, it's unbelievable how much it reduces uh, energy load. So when we're talking about a warming climate, having trees around just to straight up block the sun and cool the air, having a cool tree to sit under. Has an unbelievably positive impact at the local level when you when you start to look at the orders of magnitude related to climate change mitigation like the amount of carbon stored in in in, uh, trees and urban forests um, it really does pale in comparison to what dense natural forests store not that it's insignificant but the climate change adaptation benefits and and the mitigating at a local level the impacts of an increasingly harsh environment is is so much more valuable. Um, uh, really eclipses the, the value. Um, and, and yeah, those,
0: stormwater management is is,
1: is, yeah, is very
0: significant too. That's
1: that's a lot of it. Um, the the water infiltration values. You you and I know all about that. But
0: what do you thinks missing from the discussion of climate change. Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves?
1: I mean the the. The the really frustrating thing, and I've kind of alluded to this, is is um, is that we don't look at this as an opportunity, and we don't look at the changes that people are calling on to be made as like, okay, how can we actually make the world a better place by instituting these changes? I mean, Craig, you, you live in Toronto, you know, you know how many fewer poor air quality days you guys have now since you know there's been. Was it, mean, over the last 10 years? We got rid of the coal generation. Yeah, I mean, we, we see it here in the Maritimes. We kind of jokingly... Yeah. The, the skies are clear. Yeah, we, we jokingly say here in uh, Nova Scotia that we're the tailpipe of North America because we get the Eastern Seaboard and the Great Lakes states um, pollution. And that's it's unbelievable how much that has been reduced just by Ontario phasing out coal and uh, a, a bit of a drawback in coal emissions from the United States those coal plants being shuttered obviously has a huge climate benefit but the the benefits from just to the local people and health impacts are even greater and so when we talk about you know you know the the what's going on right now with between ottawa and uh saudi arabia the dispute that's going on over human rights issues i find quite fascinating because if if for no other reason than to no longer being beholden to a regime like that and, and the supply of oil that comes from a regime like that, what better reason do you need to, to get off fossil fuel and gas and oil altogether than, than to be able to tell those guys that, no, you got to clean up your act or you're not dealing with the rest of the world. You're going into isolation. Being able to democratically generate and consume our own electricity at a household scale, that's exciting and put it into your car, not having to, economists and provincial First all, well, and, and federal right now, uh, economists like to talk a lot about trade balances and they, they, they go on and on about increasing exports, increasing exports. Well, what about reducing imports by generating and consuming electricity that we generate at, our, at the hyper local level? I mean, these are such unbelievable opportunities and ancillary benefits in addition to um, keeping the planet from cooking that that narrative is, is not out there. Climate change is only a cost. Climate change is a political loser. We it's, it's only ever spoken of in those terms. And that's really been a failure on the part of, um, well, I'm not sure who it's on the part of, because it would be difficult to blame it on people like James Hansen. But Well, I, I mean,
0: part of it is communication. I mean, it, when you read George Monbiot's heat, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of disinformation being pumped yeah. into... Um, Uh, The environment, uh, the the communications environment as to why we shouldn't be fighting. Yeah,
1: Amory Lovins was a great example of that. He was talking about this stuff in 96, you know, of, of demonstrating how affordable efficient cars are, hyper efficient cars are, when the entire narrative is you need to do without, you need to sacrifice, you need to have less. Let's talk about the positive things that come along with it. It's, it's been a real failure. I think that's why earlier in our
0: conversation, talking about Elon Musk, it sort of changed the conversation there. It was not doing without, it was, wow, it would be great to do with that electric car. That's cool. Yeah, so- Zero to uh,
1: 60 in 3.4 seconds. That's a much better narrative than climate
0: change. I think that uh, there's a button called insane that there used to be on the, on the car that would allow <laughs> that kind of acceleration. Um, what about uh, who's missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any key voices who are missing, and if so, how do we get them
1: to the table? To, to go back to Community Forest International and 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 the 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 the, com- the communities that are on the front lines in places like Pemba, where you have average annual incomes between a dollar and two dollars uh, a day, um, when the temperature goes up five degrees in Toronto you guys just kick in another another station we get more uh, generating electrical generating station we get more air conditioning um, we have governments that come to our rescue when we have bad flooding in the St John River Valley that we have infrastructure to deal with that mostly people get frustrated because a highway will be closed for a little while well these communities who are living, you know, subsistence. We're not all going to die of typhus. Exactly, and we're not going to go without food that night because the mon- second monsoon rain didn't show up and the, the bimodal rain patterns have changed and all of a sudden you can only grow a third as much food as you could before. Those communities and those people who, in a really tragic uh, twist, the people who are the least responsible for a changing climate, that suffer and and are suffering from it the most currently and for the most part they're not at the table they're at least not at the not at the table um when it comes to -to peer-to-peer discussions and conversations and, and political conversations internal to western countries right we talk about climate change as this thing that we have the luxury of discussing and that urgency is not there. That urgency of people who are suffering today from it um, is not there. It's still punted off into the future. Well, Dale, they say talk
0: is cheap, but you guys are actually doing something that's real and constructive and concrete in the developing world. And I think that your your work in Pemba in Tanzania is a great example of that. So so kudos to you guys. So we certainly face some uh, incredibly serious climate challenges over the next 25 years. What scares you the most about the challenges we now face? Besides methyl hydrates? Yeah, besides that. Maybe that was the answer
1: <laughs> right there. <laughs> methyl hydrates <laughs> off the coast. Oh, God. Yeah, quite literally. That is the stuff that kind of keeps me up at night is, is thinking of methane burps <laughs> from the ocean, of course. Um, so so but, just,
0: by the way, we should provide a little bit of background of what we're talking about because people may not know about this stuff. So, so Yeah, this is a very nerdy insight. Okay, this is us, very right? nerdy, but this is a podcast. We can get nerdy. <laughs> so methylclathrates are called or methyl hydrates or methane ice is methane that's gotten into the interstitial structure of ice molecules. And so these ice molecules are holding huge quantities of methane and they change the chemistry understand of ice so that they can change phases very fast so it goes from ice into gas very quickly and and there is some understanding that the eruptions of these huge ice lenses like there's millions or hundreds of millions of tons of this stuff in the sediments off the shores of north america and, and europe and they're linked to the permian triassic extinction event and the paleocene eocene thermal maximum these are the two big events where there's huge numbers of extinctions caused by a rising temperature increase and they think it's because of these clathrates sort of exploding from being locked up as ice into sort of barfing into the in the atmosphere and so I, I think it was James Hansen who predicted that, that methane released from um, clathrates is sort of a, a, a positive feedback loop and will create runaway climate change. So that will just depress the hell out of everyone. But anyway, that's, that's what <laughs> methyl, you know, we can fix the CO2, but oh my God, if those things go, we're cooked.
1: Well, then you see firms try, and, and companies trying to figure out how to actually mine them and you want to smack people. but uh, But that's…
0: Uh, maybe, well, unless they can use them up and deal with them and find a solution for dealing with them, maybe that's not the worst thing. But
1: the order, the orders of magnitude and you start to disturb things like that, that undertake instantaneous phase changes, you don't know what you do. Yeah, fair enough. That's, that's the ultimate human hybris, but... But back to your question. We could
0: tack off onto geoengineering for
1: another hour, which we probably shouldn't do because we would get very upset. I mean, a turning inwards that we've seen in the in the Western world right now is um, very frustrating and and really concerns me because right now what we need is to be looking at um, the global community and we need to be working in that capacity. If we're going to get this thing under control, you know, finally. China and India came to the table in a genuine, interested way around Paris. Um, to think that the richest countries in the world, that countries like Canada and the U.S., would would be the ones that sabotaged it—the power hunger of populist politicians really worries me because they will always give the easy excuse. They will always give people um, reason to believe that they don't need to make the difficult choice if it means they get power, which is to say, a dopamine shot to their egos. That is the stuff. that that concerns me the most. Um, Because we are the countries that can afford to do this. And and it's it's more affordable than ever. You, You know, you asked earlier about how do I feel? Well, how do I feel about the whole climate change thing? Practical reality is we can do this. What really scares me is the populist politics that say, no, you don't have to, everything's fake.
0: So going from what scares you the most, what gives you hope for the future? What
1: keeps you going when things are looking really dark? I, the numbers. I mean, the numbers are what really. And and this may sound strange, um, because a lot of people will say, "Well, look at the numbers on climate change. It's it's too late." Um, I don't think that that's the case at all. And of course, my my background is not in global climate modeling, but um, when you look at the rate at which we could deploy our entire productive capacity, as seven and a half billion people or however many we have on the planet right now, we could do this. We can absolutely do this. Those curves on on solar energy and, and, and batteries, those cost curves coming down and knowing what we can do with our forests, I find that even climate scientists really underappreciate the value that our forests could play. And a lot of that is because people don't understand just how much we've beat our forests up globally. You look at the amount of land that's been lost in in places like brazil forest land and and here in in the maritime provinces alone we're small but we could be pulling uh 10 million tons of carbon out of the air every year just this small little dot over here so yeah the the numbers and the practical reality of it is is what 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 keeps me going
0: What about uh, advice to listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference? A lot of people listening are are probably thinking about the big picture of forests and so forth and wondering, well, what what can I do to make a difference? Any advice to them?
1: I mean, I've always been empowered with my Mm -hmm. modest purchasing power. You know, people vote much more with their dollar than they do every four years in an election. And responsible consumerism and educated consumerism um, or consumption really sends seismic shifts through markets. Uh, Again, back to Patagonia as an example, you know, that company has such an unbelievably loyal following. Um, After Trump got elected, they decided for a day they were going to take 100 percent of the sales from their products on that day and donate them to um, environmental initiatives that have been defunded by Trump. And they sold $25 million worth of goods in that day because everyone showed up and said, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. Whether it's, uh, whether it's people that, that, that burn a little bit of firewood, ensuring that they, they get it from a responsible source or sourcing your sourcing every part of your life in a way that is true to you and true to your values. It's the way that we have the most power. Um, and I find it incredibly empowering to, to, to back people with my dollar.
0: That's very helpful. So, just to wrap up, a, a few questions I'd like to ask to conclude an interview, if you're willing. First question: What books do you most often give or recommend to people?
1: The books that I most I most recommend or send to people are either incredibly uh, inspiring or incredibly depressing. There's nothing in between. Um I I uh I have got to I've got to put so
0: a, So let's go for the let's go for the inspiring ones. What 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 titles? We'll we'll put them on the pod podcast blog.
1: Well, I I can still remember uh I can still remember sitting here in Sackville one night when uh we put a book order for nine, uh, 1491 into uh an address in in Toronto. Um it it, it had a big impact. Well, well,
0: that was my address by the way.
1: Yeah, uh, Charles C Mann. um it it it's a book that really changes um, changes your perspective on and, and the, the, uh, the the lens through which you look at um, North America and and the the, the, the European settlement patterns um, you know there's there's been a, a lot of criticisms about Charles Mann's uh, approach but but fundamentally um, these books that that call into question the the fundamental ingrained, assumptions and um, uh, prejudices that, that that we do have and we hold that we're not even aware of through no fault of our own um, you know 1491 is is is, is an incredible read um, and, and and very and, and
0: very <laughs> prescient in how it understands how a culture prior to ours could basically have created two whole continents of permaculture mm. ecologically, sufficient permaculture yeah. um, and here we're struggling to just yeah. deal with
1: co2 alone well we we have this unbelievable unbelievable assumption that agriculture industrial agriculture is the only thing that can feed this many people on this planet and it's a completely untested assumption i mean i'm i'm gonna uh, pivot a little bit here craig but if, if you give me the room to hang myself um, absolutely in, in the podcast realm besides 21st century imperative I, I don't know if you've gotten on to um, anything by Dan Carlin and his, his Hardcore History podcast, but it's a... He, not he, yet, but I'll put it on the list. Yeah, he's a really interesting uh, commentator, and he'll, he'll, he'll make the point again and again and again that he's not a historian. It's, they're all historical, um, historical podcasts, but um, he does these very in-depth uh, podcasts. It's funny, his original ones were about 15 minutes long. Now' it's every, nothing's shorter than five hours, and, and I just love <laughs> oh, it. But, and they, <laughs> exactly. Um, but he framed, the way he frames things, he's able to frame up historical events in such a way that really makes you think critically about what's going on today. Like for example, he, he did a four-part series on the fall of the Roman uh, Republic and finished with Julius Caesar. And he, he didn't have to say it, but the links that he was tying in with the, the, the U.S. Republic and the challenges that it's having are unbelievable. Right after Trump got elected, he did one on uh, the history of uh, the nuclear bomb um, that, that's, that really uh, goes over, again, this crazy thing, this crazy uh, assumption that we make, you know, oh, this power to set off a nuclear bomb, it's in the hands of government and officials and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's in the hands of a person. You know, and, and in, in 1945, <laughs> yes, who that person in is. the hands of the, the haberdasher from Missouri, uh, Harry Truman, you know, it's, I, I push that at anyone who, uh, who I want to punish with a four hour podcast.
0: That sounds good. I, I was listening to a Sam Harris' podcast the other day. Have you listened to um, his uh, podcast, uh, Waking Up?
1: No, no, I haven't. So,
0: one of the things that was discussed was this notion of the intellectual dark web. And that someone made that reference, maybe it was Sam, to podcasts as being the intellectual dark web (laughs) because there's so much wonderful content on it, but it's for rarefied taste. Anyway, second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing greenhouse gas emissions or helping cities and communities adapt to climate change or helping repair the environmental damage our species has already caused, what would it be and why?
1: I mean, I, I feel like this is going to be a bit of a cliche, but, but carbon pricing is the simplest way that we can. It, it's it's unbelievable just how obvious it is that if we just make it more expensive to emit carbon and put some incentive on pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, how quickly it'll change. You know, this company... Um, I think, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll probably misquote them. Uh, climate engineering um, out of British Columbia. They were a, a Harvard uh, lab that was developing a chemical and physical process to pull carbon dioxide out of ambient air, a- ambient atmosphere. And they set up in 2008. They incorporated and set up in British Columbia. And they set up in British Columbia because. British Columbia was an early adopter putting a price on carbon, a low price, but a price. Their whole process, the way the process works, without getting into the minutia of it, um, they pass air through a medium, pull the carbon dioxide out of it, and then somehow they can turn that into a gas, like gasoline, a liquid fuel. So gasoline, kerosene, diesel, they can produce from just the atmosphere. They can do it for about $100 per ton of carbon dioxide sequestered, Um, which I believe works out to around the same in in terms of dollar per barrel of oil. Like they're able to get very close to an affordable barrel of synthetic oil produced from passing the atmosphere through their little refinery thing. And so they set up in British Columbia because they knew that there'd be a little bit extra certainty, a little more fat in their business model. Right now they're focused on generating and selling liquid fuels. So it's not about the sequestration benefits at all but they'll be able to monetize the sequestration benefits in British Columbia. And this is not something that ever would have gotten, it's taken them 10 years to get through to even um, demonstrating a commercial concept at a somewhat affordable price point. It's taken them 10 years to get there. And uh, without that extra certainty and a little bit of extra help from the province of British Columbia that came by way of their price on carbon, their carbon tax, they, they they never would have set up there they may never have gotten there to begin with and now here's this company that's you know you just imagine craig if they can if they can pull a, a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere get their price point down below 100 dollars a ton and sell a barrel of oil out of it how how much of a demand there would be around the world because we're not talking about replacing the internal combustion engine we're just fueling it with a different you know an atmospheric fuel so yeah I, I, I kind of forget what your original question was about, but so the, so the technology exists and and, and, and they and, just have to. These have are the, the, the pricing signals exactly. To, these to are make the things. Goes. These the, the, are the things that the the people look at carbon pricing and they say. Some people look at carbon pricing and they say, "How is me paying more tax going to stop climate change?" Well, these are the knock-on benefits. Same as with the uh, feed-in tariff in Ontario and and uh, and Germany. It wasn't necessarily about bringing on renewable energy now. It was about giving manufacturers the confidence that there would be scale of demand sufficient for them to invest in manufacturing processes that were could put solar panels on the market cheap enough that all that you get uh, installed solar below a dollar a watt. So, cool. Yeah, carbon pricing. Let's do it. Let's keep doing it. Question:
0: If you're provided. With a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times that you could fill with any written or graphic content you wanted, what would you do with it? What would you say? What graphic images would you use?
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be, it would have to be related to the reality of how cheap renewable energy is, has become the, the, the price curve on all those battery technologies. That's the thing that people aren't quite grasping in, in in a place like Nova Scotia right now. Best case scenario on a t- installed solar with the uh, net metering program that we have, yeah, you're looking at around a five to seven percent return on investment on rooftop and solar rooftop solar installed at your house, and that's you you get locked into a 25 year contract with that. That's not bad. That's actually all right when you're talking about 25 years, especially if the cost of electricity is going to go up. Because with the the pricing scheme, the price of as the price of electricity goes up, what you sell your electricity onto the grid for goes up as well. I, I bring these numbers to family members and show them the realities. And they're like, well, solar panels are all right, but it's going to cost way too much. And maybe five years down the road, it's like, we're there. Like, here are the numbers. Here's what it actually costs. Uh, that fundamental realization you see a light go on in people's eyes when they actually clue into the fact that wait a second i could have an electric car and drive it every day and it's actually going to cost me less than the my gas bill with the payments i'm making on that honda civic it's actually going to save me money when you can show people that in real terms all of a sudden they're a climate change convert they're they're all for climate action very very true Something around that is is what I spend my money on with The New York Times. So why don't you do a hand sketch and they'll put it in in the blog and Sounds And finally
0: <laughs> and finally, to wrap up, do you have anything to ask of the listeners?
1: Vote with your money. Make your consumer purchases speak your values. That is the greatest power that we have in this market economy as individuals. Back your values up with your with your, with your dollars, and and um, and you'll have a, a greater impact than you you ever thought you would. That's perfect. By the way, if listeners and grow a tree, oh <laughs> okay. grow a tree. No, I had to get that in there, right? Grow a tree.
0: And if listeners want to connect with you, what website, Facebook page, or a Twitter handle should they follow you on? We'll post it on
1: the blog. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm- I'm I'm an infrequent but present uh, Twitter user at Dale Prest P R E S T, and we're we're just about to launch our website at the Climate Forest Company. It's climateforest.ca. So uh, keep your eye out for that one. Thanks very much, Dale. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Craig. You've this provided is- listeners with many useful and inspiring insights. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it's been a pleasure.
0: You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.